Reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in, came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If you have ever read William Goldman's book, The Princess Bride, and I know more people have seen the movie than ever read the book, but if you read the book, you might remember that he structured the story as though his book were actually an abridgment of a much longer work by another author, pretending that the parts that we're actually interested in and the parts that actually made it into the movie were the good parts version. Those are his words. So we read this book and we're told what we're reading is the good parts version of a much longer work. And that was a fiction, of course. I've known a couple of people who didn't realize that, who went out and were looking for the longer version of the book, but trust me, it does not exist. Um, it was just a device that he used so that as he was telling this wonderful story, he could break at times to throw in some humorous content talking about the rest of the book that's never actually been written. But I wonder sometimes, although that was fiction, if we do in reality to the Bible what Goldman fictitiously claimed to do to S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure. We take a book like the Gospel of John and we focus on the parts that we like, the good parts. Parts like John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Or of course, John 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then there's John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And the list could go on and on. We're only up to chapter 6. And I've skipped some of the good parts that came before that. And there are so many good parts in the Gospel of John, and for that matter, in all of Scripture. We want to focus on those. If you wonder what the good parts are, you'll usually find them on your Facebook or Instagram feed with a picture of some mountains behind them and a scripture sentiment that makes you probably feel a little bit better 
about the day at hand. Another way we engage in this kind of thing in a particular way is when we publish Bibles with the words of Christ in red, highlighting those words as if the words of Christ were somehow different than the rest of the word, as if the words surrounding those words were not the words of Christ. I heard someone just recently telling a joke, of course, that a major Grand Rapids publishing house was about to release a new edition of the Bible in which all of the words of the Holy Spirit would be highlighted by printing them in black ink on white pages. I'll, yeah, I'll give you a second to think about it. I actually have that Bible right here. Because all of the words of Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to the end of the book of Revelation are the words of God himself. They are the words of the Holy Spirit. They are, in fact, the word of Christ. Now, having said that, we haven't been able to deal with all of the Gospel of John. We could spend years there if we were so inclined, and we're not going to do that. This will be the last sermon in this series. But John wraps up this amazing book with a text that we've looked at on many different occasions as we made our way through. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he's talking about all the things that Jesus did which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now the reason I started the way that I did is because John is not saying the good parts of this gospel, the parts that are easy to understand, the parts that we like. These are written so that you may believe. And he's not referring to what some people in the evangelical churches today would call the gospel parts, where Jesus calls people to believe or to follow, as if somehow there's something more gospely about those texts than there is about the rest of the book. Those texts that we might often go to if we find ourselves in evangelistic settings, having conversations with people. Jesus came and... and, and to anyone who believes in him, God gives the power that they may be born again, that they may have eternal life. At the very end of the book, as a matter of fact, in John chapter 21, verse 25, in a really striking bit of hyperbole, John wrote, now there were also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So he's exaggerating there for effect, unless he's talking about all the works of Christ from the creation on down. Maybe, I'm sure the world could not contain those books. But he's saying there's so much that didn't make it into this gospel. Not everything that Jesus said or did made it into all four gospels, never mind the gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by these, he means all of these. The good parts, like the one in which Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What a precious promise that is. But also the difficult parts, like six verses after that one, 
where Jesus is talking to a bunch of people who are grumbling because they don't believe in him and they don't agree with him. And he says, do not grumble among yourselves. No man can come to me. No one is capable of coming to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The first text is suitable for evangelism, so is the second. The whole Gospel of John, the whole of Scripture is the salvation parts, as some are wont to say about certain texts. These, all of these, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And why is this so? Why do these things that have been written down for us have the power and the potential to impart life to those who believe? Well, consider, first of all, the source of these things. John doesn't identify it in his, let, in his gospel the way that Luke did, but he does in a follow-up letter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John makes clear that he was an eyewitness to these things. He was with Jesus, and he wrote what he had seen and heard. He proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ based on his own experience with Christ. As did the apostle Peter, who said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So both Peter and John and some others in scriptures, Paul among them, talk about their personal experience of the risen Christ and of Christ even before he was crucified. And they say, we are writing about things that we saw with our own eyes and heard with our own ears. We are writing about someone who we routinely spent time with. But if we're paying attention, the reason that we know the substance of their experience is because they wrote it down. And it's worth noting that they did not say, now that I have shared my personal experience of Jesus Christ, you go forth and do likewise. Peter talks about his personal experience of Christ. He says, I was an eyewitness 
to the gospel. I heard with my own ears the voice when God spoke out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son. But then in the very same text that I read just a moment ago, Peter went on to say, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about the source of these things that have been written so that you may believe, what we're talking about is the inspiration of Scripture by God's Holy Spirit. We're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Article 3 of our Belgic Confession puts it like this. We confess that this word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of men, but that holy men of God spoke, being moved by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says. This is the source of Scripture. This is the source of what John wrote so that we could believe. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the source of those things that John is talking about. But the very fact that these words are the word of God also explains the authority of these things. In truth, the word authority says it all. Um, here's your little grammar lesson for the day. It comes to us by way of old French from the Latin octoritatum, which is itself derived from the word actor, meaning master, leader, and in our case, especially author. And you can see it in the word authority. So the authority of Scripture doesn't come from its antiquity or from its acceptance among all these different people of different cultures and different periods in history. The authority of Scripture is derived from the author of Scripture. The authority of the Word of God rests simply in the fact that it is indeed the Word of God. I've recently heard another pastor hold up a Bible and say, well, this book is not God. And he's right. This book is not God. But what this book says, God said. Because this book is his holy and divine Word. What God says to us we find written down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this book. It's not God, it is God's word. And so many today are trying to kind of undermine the idea that it's even God's word by saying, well, it's not God. There are parts of it that are just human. And that is unconditionally, unequivocally not true. The authority of this book resides in the fact that God inspired it by his Holy Spirit. God speaks these words. We find those kinds of dynamics in Scripture where a psalmist writes something. And then over in the New Testament, that gets quoted, but not as, as David the psalmist said, but rather as God said or as the Spirit of God said. God is the author of Scripture. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine Scriptures. And we believe without a doubt all things contained in them. Not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God and also they prove 
themselves to be from God. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. If it was produced by the will of man, it is not prophecy in the biblical sense of that. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Afterwards, our God, because of the special care he has for us and our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit his revealed word to writing. To have those eyewitness experiences of the apostles and prophets and of his people down through the ages written down, inscripturated for us, so that we wouldn't have to wonder, was that a word from the Lord? I think I, I just heard a voice in my head. Was, was that God? We could always just go to the Word and in the Word of God find the truth that God's Spirit has left for the church. God, because of the special care He has for us and our salvation, didn't want this to be ambiguous, didn't want us wandering around wondering if something was the Word. He gave it to us in written form. Earlier in the Gospel of John, when many of Jesus' early disciples were turning back and not following him anymore, Jesus turned to the twelve and he said, do you want to go away as well? And it's interesting how Peter responded to Jesus in that, because you might think, well, why would we want to go away? You're the, the great teacher, the rabbi. We're seeing you do miracles. We're observing all of these wonderful works that you are doing in God's name. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Again, this is one of those themes that John just develops and then redevelops as he walks through this gospel. It is the word that the Spirit uses to impart and create faith and repentance in the hearts of those who are called to be the people of God. And the authority of that word rests in the authority of the author, God himself. Which brings us to the third and final point that I want to make from this text this morning, the sufficiency of these things. By the way, if you want to know where these words, authority, sufficiency, infallibility, come from, you can open that gray hymnal in front of you there, blow the dust off, and near the back you'll find the Belgic Confession, Articles 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, all of which testify to what we as a church believe about the Word of God. And maybe the most important thing that we believe is that the Word of God is sufficient. We don't need further revelation. We don't need further clarification. We need to take a stand on the word of God and the truth that the Holy Spirit has baked in there. We just read about this in Peter's reply in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And it was in the text that Laura read for us this morning too. These are written, these words have been put down in Scripture so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But the word life in this text is not limited to that idea of salvation after you die. Far from it. 
In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Paul stated this principle as well in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he wrote to his true child in the faith, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Greek words there, sacred writings, holy scriptures would be a really good translation of that. And Paul's saying to Timothy, continue in this faith that you have because you know where it came from and you know that it's been verified in these sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Not only that, salvation through faith is bigger than simply heaven when we die. Paul went on to say, all scripture... All scripture, the word of God in its entirety from Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is breathed out by God. He is the source. He is the author. He is the one who has sent it to us. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, not merely so that we can come to know him and be saved. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof for correction, and for training in righteousness, and all of these things so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, we don't need to be equipped for the good works that we're going to do in heaven after we die. We need to be equipped for life in this world. How should we now live? in the light of all of the storms that are swirling around us in our culture? Where do we take a stand when it feels like the rug's being pulled out from under our feet? What do we do when we turn on the internet and we see so many things that are contrary to the way that they've been in the world up till now? Well, if that's the only thing they're contrary to, then don't even worry about them. But if they are contrary to the Word of God then we need scripture to inform and reform our ideas about what it means to be a child of God in this world. We need scripture for teaching. We need scripture for reproof, for those times that we stray from the way. It's scripture that brings us back. We need scripture for training in righteousness so that in the end we will be complete and we will be ready. We will be equipped for every good work. See, the word of God is not found merely in the salvation parts of Scripture. I, I can't tell you all the times I've heard somebody say something like that. We talk about some contemporary issue, and you open the Bible and you say, yeah, but it says here in Leviticus or here in Romans that this is what God thinks about this subject. And someone will say, yeah, but that's not the salvation parts. God's not going to ask you what you thought about that in order for you to get into heaven. But the whole of Scripture is the salvation part. The whole of Scripture is the Word of God given to us so that we can come to know Him by grace through faith, given to us so that we can be equipped for and empowered for every good work. 
says this in Article 2 of our Belgic Confession. He, God, makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word, that would be the Bible, as much as we need in this life for his glory and for the salvation of his own. And then in Article 7, we believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely. Don't let somebody lead you astray by saying, well, clearly the Bible doesn't contain instructions on how to fix your Toyota Prius. No, it doesn't. But that has little to do with the will of God. The will of God is contained in Scripture completely, We believe that and we believe that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, ought to teach other than what the Holy Scriptures have already taught us. The language of the confession is very mild there because what Paul actually said is if anyone comes to you and is preaching a gospel other than the gospel that we preach to you, the gospel that you receive, let him be accursed. And accursed is kind of a euphemism in translating that word. Paul is using the strongest terms. So if somebody comes and wants to preach something that's called the gospel, but it's not the gospel that you received, don't believe them. Let them be accursed. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule. So the word of God, the Bible, is inspired. It's God-breathed. It is the Word of God. It's authoritative, because when God speaks, we need to listen. When God speaks, we need to stand ready to submit and obey to the Word of God. And it's sufficient, not just for the saving of our souls, but for creating within us that abundant life that Jesus promised. A.W. Tozer once said, nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. When he said that, he was talking about all 66 books, Old Testament, New Testament. There's no sense in which we as the church of Jesus Christ are meant to uncouple from all of that awkward stuff that we find in the book of Genesis or the book of Malachi or the book of Leviticus. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Or in the words of John the Apostle, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, eternal life and abundant life in his name. Let's pray. Father, draw us deeply into your word. The word that we've heard this morning, the word that most of us have sitting on a shelf somewhere at home, the word that we're carrying around. Draw us deeply. Give us a hunger and thirst to know the words in which you reveal yourself, these words of eternal life. 
And Father, as we take time to read, open our eyes, our hearts, our minds to receive the truth that you have for us, that in knowing the truth, the truth, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, would make us free, we pray in his holy name. Amen.